Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. We're back for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thanks to all of you for being with us for uh, today's show. Uh, We're going to take up any number of subjects on the program today, including the fact that President Trump uh, is here this afternoon. And uh, Greg Bluestein, it's Wednesday, who is always on the show with us on Wednesdays, will be the pool, one of the pool reporters for that. And later in the show, we'll talk about it. Greg, uh, you're, you're getting set right now to have a coronavirus test uh, so that you can be in the pen with uh, uh, the other reporters and uh, officials from the White House, right? You got it. I'm staring at a bus that I will soon be entering to get that nasal swab that I was somewhat dreading right now. Uh, I'll do that right after I get off the show. Well, we're grateful to you for taking the time to be uh, with us today. Uh, Kyle Hayes is back with us. He, of course, is the overseer of Peach Pod, which is a terrific peach uh, a podcast about Georgia politics. Kyle is a Georgia boy, but now lives in Washington, where you work for a big, you're a think tank guy right these days, right, Kyle? Yeah, healthcare policy to think tank. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit. Your most recent, I think I'm correct, the most recent podcast, in fact, is about an election issue, which is you talk to uh, a, a candidate for DA out in Athens in Oconee County who won a lawsuit over being able to run for that seat rather than uh, the governor being able to appoint for that seat. Have I got that correct? Yeah, we did. And uh, that's a really interesting episode in relation to this similar battle going on uh, with the state Supreme Court seats where uh, the state passed a law meant to make the process for DAs mirror the process for the state Supreme Court. So it'll be interesting to see if there's any legal ramifications shared across both of those cases. And and thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm glad you're here. Well, Elections is what we're going to talk about today. You know, over the course of the last six months, we have had Brad Raffensperger or others from the Secretary of State's office on uh, on occasion in various stages of pri- the primary elections, everything leading up to 2020. They've made their case for why they think they're doing everything as well as can be expected. Um, we had a show in which we talked about the finger pointing between the Secretary of State's office and counties, particularly in metro Atlanta, about the disastrous June 9th primaries uh, here, particularly in metro Atlanta. But, you know, there's another organization that has been become one of the most important and certainly highly visible and well-funded organizations working on issues relating to voter integrity. Uh, and that, of course, is Fair Fight Action the organization which came out of Stacey Abrams' campaign for governor. And uh, so we've invited uh, Lauren Growargo, who is the head of Fair Fight Action, to join us today because, Lauren, we really wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about where Fair Fight Action and, for that matter, the Fair Fight PAC are headed as we move toward, first, the August runoff elections and then, of course, the big election in November. So thank you, Lauren, for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me, Bill. 
So let me start with a simple question. Um, it, it, I assume that COVID-19 and the ramifications of people not going in person to vote, uh, issues with absentee balloting, I assume that's become a huge focus for you at this point in what you're trying to do to assure the maximum number of people have an opportunity to vote in the cycle upcoming, correct? Absolutely. The pandemic has huge implications uh, in a state like Georgia, where we've seen a combination of malfeasance and deliberate indifference by the Secretary of State in preparing for elections. And we saw in the June primary in Georgia, all of those problems compounded and exacerbated by the dynamics that the pandemic presented. But I think overall, you know, the Secretary of State had two opportunities uh, in delaying that primary to try and get it right. And we still saw such a massive failure and not too dissimilar, frankly, to what we saw, however, in the 2018 general election with the long lines and all of those types of problems. So I know we're going to dig into that, but in a pandemic environment, all of the problems we've seen in Georgia, the poll closures, the issues on training and resources to the counties by the Secretary of State, all of those challenges that they had coming into this are now just blown up. Um, to a new level. And that's where we have really high expectations on the Secretary of State to get this right for the fall so that voters can have confidence um, in our elections overall. I, I'm an, I want to give Greg and uh, Kyle a chance to jump in in a minute, but I just want to follow up with uh, uh, one or two quick questions about that. Um, Raffensperger's office, uh, would you agree that they seem to try to do the right thing by sending out absentee ballot requests to every registered voter in the state, that that was a good direction to head. And the corollary to that is if it was, uh, despite whatever follow-up they had that may not have worked as well, uh, how, how uh, potentially uh, problematic is it that they're not going to do that again this time? Yeah, the secretary's decision to send applications to all active voters, so they didn't include inactive voters. We, we supported their decision to mail those applications. However, they didn't do the rest of the best practices that experts recommend related to ramping up vote by mail. And in a pandemic, <laughs> our public servants, our elected officials, their mission should be to protect the residents of the state. And so mailing those applications the next step would have been to centrally process those so that the burden didn't fall on all of our counties and to provide technical support um, to those counties for such a large vote-by-mail effort. And so they did part of it, uh, and then, but they didn't, they didn't execute it very well, and they didn't execute it all the way through. They used an out-of-state out of vendor on the application mailing. The mailings themselves are very confusing. They look like junk mail. So there's sort of compounding problems here, but absolutely, sending the applications was a good move. We saw really a strong historic turnout um, as well as strongly historic problems in voting uh, simultaneously in June. Uh, and then we see uh, reported in national media that uh, Raffensperger is working with the Trump administration who basically slapped them for mailing out these applications. And so now they're not doing it again. And we're seeing just an unbelievable COVID spike in our state with no, no end in sight. And so now we're going into an August runoff and a fall election 
where now the Secretary of State's not going to mail those applications, not going to learn from the lessons of the primary in terms of what a, a high vote by mail environment is going to look like on some of those items like centrally processing, supporting counties in a different, more robust way, et cetera. And they're just going to sort of pass the buck. Let's be clear, there's still going to be large vote by mail in the fall, whether or not the secretary uh, sends those applications or not. I'm sure that many third party groups and campaigns on both sides of the aisle are going to mail applications to voters in our state. And the counties will again be flooded by electronic submission of applications and mail submission of applications. And unfortunately, we seem to have Secretary of State that's sort of putting his head in the sand um, on those issues on how do we properly resource the counties on the technical side and how as a state in a pandemic, in a high vote by mail environment, implement some of the best practices for processing those applications in a timely fashion so that voters can track their application and their ballot along the way, that the data is being updated regularly. You can sort of follow your ballot along in the process and, um, you know, address any issues along the way with your application or your ballot uh, so that you can see and have your vote um, securely and safely actually counted. Because part of the problem we saw in June, we saw it um, in 2018, we saw it in June, and we're going to see it at a very large scale if the secretary does not sort of shore this up, which is folks casting a ballot but not having it counted, right? And so that, that is a significant challenge here, which is that folks, uh, when the processing isn't properly resourced, isn't transparent in terms of the data being updated along the way, what we saw in June was over 11,000 Georgia citizens, their vote-by-mail ballots were rejected, most of which because they, were, they arrived too late to be counted. And so all of these issues, we have a problem of uncounted ballots in Georgia, and that's going to become a very significant issue in the fall. And I will tell you, it's no surprise to us <laughs> But sadly, the uncounted rejected ballots in June, similarly to what we saw in 2018 in the general, disproportionately Democratic ballots, disproportionately ballots of voters of color. And so there's litigation right, you've, right you've now. You've given us a... T- Go for it, uh, Bill. Can I, <laughs> let me do this. You yeah. have given us a lot to unpack already. So let me get Greg and then Kyle into the conversation, and we'll take up some of what you had to say and more of what they want. Greg? Yeah, Lauren, I wanted to ask you, what are the realistic chances of a court-ordered changes in time for November's election? I know there's there's several pieces of litigation working its way through the court system, but the timeline is, is pretty tight right now. Yeah, it's a great question. So, look, I the state of Georgia settled a suit earlier this year around the notification of uh, voters whose ballots get rejected due to signature mismatch. And so now in Georgia, uh, the state will notify voters if you have a signature mismatch issue and give you the opportunity and time to cure. So let's just focus on that. That's a successful settlement that Mark Elias Perkins Coie were able to work with Brad Raffensperger uh, uh, on that. And so In the 2018 general election, the Abrams campaign, we ran a massive vote-by-mail effort. We caught the Republicans very flat-footed. We set 1.6 million applications to voters. We beat Brian Kemp by over 50,000 in mail votes. 
But as we were tracking those ballots along the way, our campaign had to do the records request, the data request to get anybody whose ballots were rejected. And then we individually followed up with voters. Now, Republican campaigns, Democratic campaigns, progressive conservative groups, um, if they do mail those applications, the state now has to notify the voters directly mm -hmm. if there's any rejection or signature mismatch issue. That got resolved pretty quickly, Greg, right? If the state really is serious about having a well-run election and they want to sort of clear the egg on their face on the debacle that was June, they can settle litigation. They can play ball. And so there's several pieces of litigation right now in the courts, including our Fair Fight Action Suit, as well as new litigation uh, filed by the New Georgia Project with Mark Elias and others um, around some of these issues. So let's look at those really quick, because I think this is a really important point, because litigation, advocacy, organizing, you know, it's all hands on deck to, to address these problems. And Fair Fight Action, we do all of those pieces. The New Georgia Project suit uh, specifically attacks these issues of getting mail ballots counted. There are winners and losers on mail ballots in this country. Voters of color are disproportionately impacted on their ballots not being counted through signature mismatch issues and the rest. And so the New Georgia Project, Mark Elias litigation, uh, talks about one really big and some other some other items, but one really big item that I want to talk about, which is the ballot receipt deadline. So the ballots that were rejected in Georgia in June because they were that arrived too late, there's litigation right now against Brad in the courts to say that so long as ballots are postmarked by election day, they should be counted and give a couple days after for that receipt. And that will help the disproportionately African-American, Latino, Asian-American voters and young voters who tend to be to fall into this late receipt category. But I want to point out that this <laughs> also will impact Republicans and conservatives who run vote by mail campaigns in an environment where the mail may be going slow and where mail processing and application processing by the counties and the state may be slow. And so there's right. really good reasons for the state to, to play ball. Uh, similarly, with the Fair Fight Action litigation we filed after the 2018 election, if you reread uh, all of those issues, they're exactly the same issues we're seeing today. And there are very concrete things the state can do to, to address that in terms of training and support for counties, um, in terms of mailing absentee ballot request forms, some of the online technology and the rest. I'll um, jump Lauren, in. Building on that question about litigation, I've sort of been struck by there's a lot of different lawsuits moving on sort of individual technical issues that you've discussed. Um, and I have this sense, and, and you should correct it if it's wrong, that in some instances, the remedies and the courts on these individual technical issues are a little bit underwhelming. You know, for instance, if somebody is trying to vote on their lunch break at 11 in the morning and they uh, can't wait in a long line and they can't come back in the evening, some remedy that keeps the polls open late may not have addressed that individual's problem. Um, do you think that within federal law and state law um, that there are adequate protections for the right to vote in Georgia? And if not, if there was a legislature that was interested in bolstering people's right to vote after the elections this fall, what would you suggest that they do uh, when they go to Atlanta? 
So it's a really good question. I think part, so sort of two, two answers to that. One, right now, the Secretary of the State, and the reason we sued Kemp and Raffensperger on this and not all the counties is currently in Georgia law, the Secretary of State and State Election Board have the duty to have uniformity. It's very clear that all of the issues we're seeing around provisional ballots, absentee ballots, purging voters, training and assistance to counties, which relates to lines and precinct closures and the rest, the Secretary of State and State Election Board can remedy all of those. They have enough power in the state of Georgia, the way their relationship works with the counties. And so our overall message is do your job and quit playing around on partisan voter suppression. So, and, and the deliberate indifference is some of the lack of training and resources. What happens is it disproportionately falls on large counties like Fulton and DeKalb that are disproportionately Democratic and disproportionately African-American when you have the level of issues impacting the majority of voters in a couple of large counties. And then you have smaller rural counties that don't have the level of lines and the rest. And so right now it's about accountability and it's about professionalizing that office and, and, and really challenging their racially discriminatory practices around the way they purge voters, encourage precinct consolidation, which disproportionately impacts Black Georgians and the rest. On what the legislature can do and what um, the courts can do and force, and force the state is force some of these best practices um, that, the, that the Secretary of State seems unwilling or unable to do. Um, in a heightened vote by mail environment, some of those items around central processing, a very easy online way to request ballots. There are a number of changes that will really improve um, election administration. And then to your very, very good question around the person who shows up, the line is too long and they leave. The essential poll tax we have in Georgia in general elections and in, a, in the June primary, we saw it in, in the fall in 2018, which is these really long lines is one of the top voter suppression tactics in this country. Some of it is due to uh, sort of incompetence. Some of it is intentional. We've got a frothy mix of all of it here with the massive scale of precinct closures we saw. That's part of the reason why we have such long lines in June. Um, and there are very specific things Greg? that we can do to support counties on these issues to mitigate lines. You know, I want to ask you a Greg, voter perception in. Yeah, I want to ask you a voter perception question, because we saw this in, in June firsthand um, where, you know, we're, we're used to elections being called on election night. But as with more absentee ballots, with more mail-in ballots, with fewer staff to process all this, um, we saw some missed calls by national outlets of, of two major races in Georgia. Um, and, and everyone's saying that November could be not just Election Day, but Election Week. Of course, in 2018, we had we had our, our version of election 10 days, uh, you know, with, with of course, the, the Stacey Abrams campaign. Um, but I want to ask you if this is something how we get voters acclimated to that reality that, that we might not have a clean result uh, on, on November on election night of, of, of the uh, election results. I think it's a great question and relates to uh, how you and members of the media talk about it, because I think in the current environment we're in, there should be no expectation that close races are called on election night and that it's going to take time. It's going to take time to go through the mail. It's going to take time to count these ballots and we're not going to have results right away. And so I think it's a shift that people have to adapt to. I certainly think Georgians um, are adapted to it after the 10 day period and 
and the, the counting that happened after the Abrams campaign, that that's going to be more typical, just the reality when we have so much, um, so many ballots coming in by mail and uh, tight races up and down the ballot. So I do think this is a new normal. And certainly in states like Pennsylvania and Michigan, um, which uh, before the pandemic had very significant positive changes to their elections law, really expanding access and early voting and vote by mail. Those are two critical swing states that are going to need some time to count. And that's not going to mean that there's a problem necessarily. It's going to mean that there needs to be time to count. And so this is definitely uh, something that everybody needs to adjust to. Lauren, I want to jump in. I know you've only got a couple more minutes because you've got a busy schedule this morning. But I, I want to jump back in with uh, uh, loop back to uh, uh, the first uh, uh, comments you made. You, you said that uh, Raffensperger, in coordination with uh, uh, the Trump administration, had pulled back on uh, offering ballot applica- absentee ballot applications to every registered voter in the state. Uh, I'm not aware of any. I mean, are you suggesting that Trump, just to be clear, we know the president has discouraged absentee balloting, but has there been a formal kind of partnership between Raffensperger and the Trump administration on this? Or is it just, are you saying Raffensperger picked up on the White House cues? I want to be sure we understand what you were saying there. We believe it's both. It was reported in Politico that Raffensperger worked with the Trump team on, um, that they sort of intervened on giving him guidance. And a couple things have happened in the spring. First, in April, the Secretary of State rolled out an absentee ballot fraud task force. There is no fraud in the election system at any kind of meaningful scale in our country and in our state. Yet, the Secretary of State has chosen to spend precious state resources on putting together a bunch of Republican prosecutors to uh, fearmonger around vote by mail and to try to criminalize it. So he set that up in April. And that's just not in Georgia, Bill. That is happening. Uh, Republican secretaries of state, attorney generals working with the Department of Justice and others are setting up similar task forces all over the country around trying to create uh, intimidation and potential criminalization around vote by mail. So that's clearly a coordinated national Republican strategy that Brad has participated in. Secondly, we know that in the late closure of session here this uh, summer, not only in Georgia, but in Ohio and a couple other states, there were attempts led uh, by the national Republicans to move legislation in states to prohibit secretaries of states and localities from sending out absentee ballot applications. That failed in Georgia. But we see that moved around the country, which is another indication of a national Republican strategy. And third, uh, you've seen the secretary's own decision that he has now said that he's not going to send the applications in the fall. So it's clear through their practices, through what's happening around the country, and then through some national reporting that there is clearly coordination going on. Part of what the Trump RNC is doing is architecting out a whole set of policies and strategies, both political and through where they have um, uh, constitutional office holders in this country to try to erect barriers and to create some intimidation around vote by mail. But it's not going to well, turn I think out it's imp- very high. I think it's important to point out, and I apologize for interrupting at the end, but again, I'm mindful of your time. I think it's important to point out that Fair Fight, because of what you just said, you've expanded. You're like in 18 states now. You're not just in Georgia. I want to give Kyle the last question here because we, uh, Lauren has to uh, get, off our, uh, get off the show in a second. So, Kyle, it's all yours. 
Uh, thanks for joining us today, Lauren. Um, just a brief update on the uh, sweeping challenge that y'all are on that challenges the totality of Georgia's election system. Where is that case in the process? Is it close to a resolution? And is that resolution going to have any bearing on elections in 2020? We are both um, in sort of the late stage, later stages of litigation there. The state just filed a motion for summary judgment, uh, sort of reprising some of their earlier arguments that did not hold water in the court. Uh, so those, that is ongoing right now. And we're also looking at potential new litigation coming out of the June primary, where we have talked to thousands of voters um, about their experiences voting and really documenting all of the problems. So more to come soon, but yes, we are hell-bent on uh, making sure that voters get some relief in the fall and looking at all options on the table, um, but we are in some of those uh, in-the-weeds part of the litigation, so we expect news soon on all of those fronts. All right, Lauren, we promised we'd get you out of here by 9.30 so you could go on with your day, but uh, thank you so much for uh, joining us. It's good to get the uh, a fair fight perspective on where we're headed in the elections, the runoff election in August, and then, of course, the November election. And we look forward to checking in with you again uh, as the election cycle moves forward. But in the meantime, Lauren Groargo, thank you so much for joining us for Political Rewind today. Thanks for having me, Bill. I really appreciate it. All right. It's uh, time to get a break in, but Kyle and Greg and I have plenty to talk about when we return from our break. So we'll do that in just a moment. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. I just want to remind everybody, if you were just listening to the previous segment, and if you're a regular listener to the show, which I, I know many, many of you are, thank goodness, uh, uh, obviously, Fair Fight has a very specific point of view. They're an important force in this state in terms of uh, watching uh, the election process unfold. And because we do believe in balance, uh, we've had Brad Raffensperger on the show on several occasions. We've had others in his office on the show who have talked about how they pr have approached the election. And uh, we haven't done anything so far with fair fight. So this was a great opportunity to hear the work that uh, they plan to do and have been doing as we move toward the 2020 election. All right, Greg, Greg Bluestein still sitting in a car waiting to have a nasal swab so that he can be cleared to cover the president when uh, the president arrives around, I think, 3 o'clock or so, is with us. Uh, and so is Kyle Hayes, uh, whose podcast uh, Peach Pod uh, is uh, a really worthy uh, a, a podcast for you to add to, to your uh, list of podcasts that you listen to. All right, Greg Bluestein, let's start with you. The president's here mid-afternoon. We now have polling. This is supposedly an official White House visit, not a campaign visit. Um, but, but, you know, how do you distinguish really with any president who's up for re-election, uh, maybe President Trump more than most? Um he comes here at a time when the polling shows him in a virtual tie with Joe Biden for voters in the state of Georgia. What do you make of that, Greg? Yeah, what strikes me is how different this visit is from the environment he faced back in March during his last visit when he visited the CDC 
Um, this is right as the pandemic was was uh, was was becoming a growing crisis. This was before the, the social protests uh, demanding uh, racial justice and equality. This was at a time where he was still on a high in the polls after the failed uh, Democratic-led effort to to oust him from office and the impeachment hearings. Um, and this is when you know Republicans in Georgia had a better standing. Um, now you see that uh, poll after poll after poll shows him in a tight race with Joe Biden and down ticket Republicans in tight races against their Democratic adversaries. Even Republican, uh, you know, or, or, uh, uh, sponsored polls show that. So that 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 just shows you how seriously they're taking Georgia. Um, Republican aligned groups are spending more than twenty four million dollars uh, on ads to to promote Republican candidates for, for the U.S. Senate. And Trump has already laid out seven figures worth of advertising in Georgia in June. Um, so that's something we did not see in 2016, 2012, 2008, uh, where Georgia was kind of seen as a given for Republicans. So uh, the Trump campaign is taking Georgia seriously, and that's why uh, he's back here. And that's why Mike Pence came twice in one week in May um, to get that free media attention and to try to drive that message home. Yeah, I thought Greg's piece was excellent on this. I think if we get to November and we look back um, and Democrats manage to flip uh, the state of Georgia, either on the presidential level or one of the Senate seats or uh, flip the 7th Congressional District, I think this period of time between March and now is going to be important in sort of describing how that happened. Um, I also think it's interesting in the context of how down-ballot candidates react to the president You've seen in recent days Senators Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue and, and Congressman Doug Collins, who's in that Senate race, really tie themselves closely to the president's messaging, particularly on issues of criminal justice and, and Black Lives Matter. I think the incentives in the 6th and 7th districts would be a little bit different for those Republicans. Um, and so I saw in your reporting, Greg, I think uh, Senator Leffler and, and Representative Collins are supposed to be there today. I'm, I'm curious if any of the other down-ballot Republicans in more competitive places are going to be tied as closely to the president. Yeah, I mean, and, and Senator Perdue is going to be here as well. And he was spotted on a plane flying from Atlanta to, 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 to DCA, to Reagan Airport in Washington, um, just so he could hop back on the flight and come back down, down here in Air Force One, because obviously the price of a ticket from Atlanta to Washington, a Delta flight or so, uh, or something like that, is worth it for, for these candidates to, to be seen coming off of Air Force One with the president. Um, so that just shows you exactly what you said, how, how important it is for these Republican candidates, especially at the top of the ticket, to, to be close with, with President Trump. And I, I expect to see um, uh, former Congresswoman Karen Handel here today. I, I expect to see um, some state legislative leaders to be here today. I haven't gotten a list of who's going to be on the tarmac yet, but um, there's, there, there's no distancing yet that we're seeing um, from, from President Trump because the, these candidates know that he still has very high approval ratings among Republicans, even if his, if his standing is starting to, to, to weaken with moderates and independents. And I think the only, the only way, the only path for Republican victory in Georgia is to continue getting that base, a huge amount of support from that base and winning rural areas um, by overwhelming margins, 80, you know, 80, getting 90, 80 or 80 or 90 percent of the vote in, in some of these counties that used to maybe go 60 or 70 percent Republican. So um, I think, uh, Greg, you essentially alluded to it, that the polling that, uh, or, or maybe it was Kyle, but it doesn't matter, the, the polling that is talked about Biden and Trump being virtually tied here, 
Uh, similar polling also does show that uh, in Senate race, what we call Senate race number one, the David Perdue race, that John Ossoff, the Democrat, is, uh, is very, very competitive in that contest. Um, and, and that's kind of, uh, Kyle, it, it, if that's true, that really does tell us a lot about how Georgia could be changing, although the proof is in the November election, Kyle. Yeah, and I think, you know, in recent years, you've seen less split ticket voting between the top of the ticket on the presidential and uh, for offices further down on the ballot. Um, So I think the fact that the Purdue-Ossoff race is polling as close as it is suggests that people's opinions, not only of the president, but of of those who have opinions of Senator Purdue, um, those are pretty hardened. And, you know, Purdue has tied himself so so closely to the president that you would anticipate that those would track pretty closely. And so if Trump is in a, a tight race with Biden in the state, you would expect Purdue to be in that same tight race with Ossoff. Um, the interesting thing, I think, is does do national Democrats decide to inject money into these races to give Democrats a better chance? Because uh, Purdue, throughout his tenure, has, has raised significant sums for his reelection. Yeah. Kyle, while you've got the we, ball, I want to I go. Go ahead, Greg. I was going to say real quick, that's something that we can't we can't forget, too, is that that the National Democratic Party still hasn't poured resources and, and money into these the, the Biden campaign in Georgia or, or some of these down ticket races like we've seen in other states. Um, when, when Joe Biden's campaign announced um, just earlier this week that it was going to air ads in North Carolina and Florida and Arizona and in Texas, um, you know, it certainly had Democrats in those states cheering, but it was there was an underlying bubble of discontent in Georgia because folks, Democrats here were saying, hey, we're, we're on that cusp, too. Um, how are we not better positioned um, than, than Democrats in Texas? Um, so as much as there is enthusiasm from Democrats in Georgia, they still haven't seen that level of investment that's followed in other, other um, you know, uh, battleground states. Um, all right, Greg, let, I want to talk for a minute about Senate race number two, the, it, it, the, the Kelly Leffler seat, which was uh, given up by Johnny Isaacson when he retired at the end of last year. And here's what I want to know. The sideshow to me later today, and I can't wait for your reporting on it, is, is number one, will Leffler be on Air Force One with the president? Do you know whether that's the case yes, or not? And regardless of whether she is or not, Okay, so uh, I'm looking forward to that awkward greeting between Doug Collins and Kelly Leffler on the tarmac as the president comes off the plane this afternoon. So are our photographers, and, and we just uh, published a joke not that long ago about <laughs> all that jockeying for position ahead of President Trump's visit to Atlanta because there's been even more intense maneuvering than we saw back in March of you know uh, of, of candidates trying to align themselves and make sure that that the media sees them with, with President Trump, and there's been a few attacks um, from, from the Collins campaign and Leffler and the Leffler campaign on Collins, and, and just different, different various things are, are going on behind the scenes that we kind of brought to light in the jolt this morning. Um, but you're exactly right. It's kind of like a – I wrote about this um, during Vice President Pence's visit not that long ago. It's kind of like a high school drama. Um, everyone wants to be near who they see as the cool kid, and there's all this – you know, there's all this behind the scenes maneuvering. At first, I was kind of told that 
that that um, that some of the Senate candidates might actually not be there. That it might just be David Perdue who's on the plane with with um, with the president, um, and, and not the and, and not the other Senate candidates from the other Senate race. Um, but clearly, if one is is there, the other has to go, and that means abandoning plans at the last minute. That means shaking up campaign schedules. That means all sorts of different things. Um, Kyle, I haven't had a chance. You have, it's been a couple of weeks since you've been on the show, and you have not been on since Kelly Leffler decided uh, that a strategy for getting more attention uh, and positioning herself as a potential winner in that uh, fall jungle election is to go after the WNBA and its support of Black Lives Matter. Um, do you do you think that's been a good strategy for her? Has she really, in fact, found a message? that can resonate with the Republican voters? Because that's what she really needs uh, to really position herself in that jungle election, right? Yeah, and I, I think that strategy is entirely informed by the fact that this is the jungle election where all candidates of all parties are going to be on one ballot instead of uh, primary split by party. Because I think her approach has been... Um, I think among the more aggressive in terms of the rhetoric that she's used, uh, especially when compared to Collins or, or even Purdue. Um, and so, you know, I, I imagine that she feels she really needs to shore up support among the Republican base and, and take that support from Collins and that that is the key to, at minimum, making a runoff. Um, I believe the most recent polling, although Greg could correct me if I'm wrong, currently has uh, – Collins and Leffler leading the polling in that race. So you could you could actually see both of them make a runoff. And in that case, you would probably see this similar discussion go on throughout until that race is finally decided. Um, if Kelly Leffler, though, ends up in a runoff against a Democrat and control of the U.S. Senate is on the line, uh, this would be the last or one of the last elections of the 2020 cycle that could determine that. Um, I don't know that this strategy will pay dividends winning a statewide race when it's her versus one Democrat. Greg? Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, and, and look, she, she'll, if, 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 she, if, Kel, if Senator Leffler makes a runoff, her strategy changes, but it also, um, she, she kind of think, crosses her fingers too and hopes that Republicans' traditional advantage in runoffs, where there tend to be lower turnout, um, will hold. But the polling is really interesting because this is this is where Senator Leffler stands to the point where um, yesterday uh, uh, Doug Collins released an internal poll of his own that showed him um, up by nine points over Senator Leffler and about 19 points um, uh, among Republicans over over Senator Leffler. He, he's had a steady steady lead in most polls. Sometimes sometimes as much as double digits, sometimes single digits. Um, and I don't think anyone disputes that it's that, that he has an advantage still, but he doesn't quite have the advantage that he might have had a few months ago, where he he did seem like, um, it, you know, th this was going to be a runaway victory, and there was calls for for Senator Leffler to drop out of the race. You don't hear those calls anymore. That narrative has has shifted, and I think that Black Lives Matter stance she took um, is indicative of that, that. That she's doing this not to not to try to appeal to to independent, moderate, you know, former Republicans who left the Demo who left for Democrats. She's doing this to appeal to core conservative voters who back Donald Trump no matter what. And that's where her path to victory um, seems to lie right now. 
So internal polls, of course, always have to be taken with a little grain of salt. Uh, Matt Lieberman's campaign released a poll yesterday, too. Or I don't know how far they released it, but they did send it to me. Greg, I'd be willing to bet you got it as well. First of all, they surveyed 410 likely voters, and 98% claim that they are definitely going to vote in the November election, which, if that's proven out, is an astonishing figure. We'll see how that goes. But uh, the internal poll that the Lieberman folks have show a gap between uh, uh, Leffler and and uh, Collins, pretty much like the, the Collins poll, about a nine-point difference. Collins at 30 percent, uh, well, Leffler at 22. But their poll suggests that uh, Matt Lieberman is actually uh, in, in second place in that race. At, well, in, I'm sorry, it's 20, 30 percent Collins, 21 percent Lieberman, Leffler at 22%, Warnock at 20%. Again, it's an internal poll, but the Lieberman campaign, Greg, using that to make sure we don't forget that he is in this race, Greg. You're exactly right. And and with with this jumbled 21-candidate special election in November with no party primaries to filter out nominees, you can't discount someone like Matt Lieberman, who's showed that he can raise some cash, who has name recognition, and has consistently been, uh, you know, either either first or second among Democrats in, in in polling. Yet at the same time, Reverend Warnock has outraised uh, Doug Collins at least this quarter. We know we know, we haven't seen Senator Leffler's numbers yet, but we, we've seen Doug Collins. He's outraised um, by a long shot, um, Doug Collins, and he also outraised both Leffler and Doug Collins in the first quarter. So he's a formidable fundraising. He's not raising the same sort of cash that you're seeing some other Senate Democrats candidates in other states raised, but he, he's, he's, he's holding his own fundraising, and he also has the full backing of the Senate Democratic political arm. He's got the endorsements of more than half of the Senate Democratic caucus. He's got Stacey Abrams at his, his back, and, and look, we've seen her fundraising capabilities. Verified Action raised 20, has raised $26 million since November 2018, um, and, and of course, she's, she's the leading Democrat or one of the leading Democrats in, in the state party. So, um, I expect there to be even more efforts to consolidate support behind Reverend Warnock as this goes on. But at the same time, um, you're not seeing any indication that Matt Lieberman is looking to drop out of the race or is even hinting that he might drop out of the race. All right, let's let's get our final break of the show out of the way. When we come back, I really want to get uh, Kyle and Greg into this con- a conversation about a decision that really takes some uh, uh, important power away from the Centers for Disease Control right here in Atlanta. We'll do that after these messages. <laughs> We're joined today by Kyle Hayes, Peach Pod, and Greg Bluestein of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution getting set to cover Uh, the president's visit to Atlanta later uh, today. Um, So, Kyle, uh, an interesting decision by HHS. They announced yesterday that when hospitals, uh, that hospitals who have always been uh, uh, required to report data, uh, in this case on COVID-19 cases that they're treating, to CDC... They will now instead most likely report it to the feds, uh, I assume through HHS, bypassing CDC 
entirely. Um, it feel it felt when I first heard this news break yesterday, like this is an effort for the administration to control information about the virus. It's, you take it out of the hands of CDC. But as I read more and more of the stories today, I found that there are a number of public health folks. There are some who think it's a terrible move, that it does strip the CDC of an important function. But I also found that there are some who think the CDC has simply not been doing the job here. And so it's interesting to, to kind of dig into what this all really means. So, Kyle, you explain it to us. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think this is another thing in a, a long list of uh, items that the CDC has done that has been criticized since the beginning of the pandemic. Um, I think the one challenge for the Trump administration in making the case that, you know, if the, if the case that they are making is this is going to make data reporting more consistent or uh, more accurate or, or whatever case they would make to say that they're making an improvement here, I think it's undercut a little bit by their other messaging throughout the pandemic. Um, and I think people's skepticism that, I think people are generally skeptical that they have not always put their best foot forward in terms of managing information flow, um, being straightforward with people and, and sending the right messages. I just think that if this is an improve, if this is truly an improvement, that that is likely to get lost, given the other challenges the administration has had. Yeah, Greg, I saw a headline in it may have been the Washington Post this morning uh, on an op-ed piece, which said, uh, "This is the moment CDC has spent its entire lifetime waiting to take on, and they failed to do it." Essentially, at the same time, uh, the uh, Kaiser Family Foundation issued this statement about this decision to bypass CDC. Historically, CDC has been the place where public health data has been sent. This raises questions about not just access for researchers, but access for reporters, access for the public to try to better understand what is happening with the outbreak. Uh, so it's, it, it, it's going to be interesting, as, as Kyle says, Greg, to watch how this proceeds and whether we are going to get important data about the virus. Yeah, and we've seen the CDC sideline really since the get-go. Um, the, the agency uh, flubbed the initial uh, attempts to get a, a, a decent test, um, also was routing all testing through the CDC at, at a time when, when there was a dearth of, 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 of testing and, and quick results. And, but but the, the, the timing of this, uh, again, coming the same day that President Trump visits Atlanta, has also led Democrats, uh, giving Democrats a sort of a, a, a talking point and a talk point. Um, John Ossoff just today, uh, the Senate Democratic nominee, um, said that, that, that the Trump administration has to cease its attacks on the CDC and guarantee um, the agency's epidemiologists and the public uncensored access to the data. And, and what that, I think, reflects, too, is that public polling still shows a very high level support for public health scientists and Dr. Fauci. And, and the people who are advising um, state and, and federal leaders. And so even if the CDC's image has been tarnished by this, the public still by and large uh, supports the views of the public health scientists who are warning that more precautions need to be in place in order to contain this virus. Yeah, I think you make an important point. Uh, perhaps under in, in a different time frame, 
there could have been an explanation for CDCs being marginalized here uh, that may have made more sense. Uh, for instance, hospitals apparently have not really uh, been doing a good job reporting their data to CDC, and HHS wants them to take it seriously. But coming in the same week that the White House has put out talking points disparaging Dr. Fauci um, and trying to, uh, in some ways, uh, 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 tarnish uh, the role that he's played, it does raise these political concerns. So uh, we'll watch how that unfolds. All right. Uh, Kyle, big, big runoff in Alabama yesterday. Jeff Sessions the first member of the United States Senate to come out and give his full-throated support for President Trump by his side for campaign event after campaign event, a proud supporter, has now lost his primary race because President Trump went in and attacked him over and over, and we now have a former football coach running for the Senate, Tommy Tuberville in Alabama. Talk, that's a... Almost a Greek drama, the story of Jeff Sessions, Kyle. <laughs> it really is. Um, and I think, you know, if you had told us in you know, in the middle of 2016, after Sessions became one of these early backers of the president, that this is how it would go, I, I don't think I would have believed you, particularly in a state like Alabama. Um, I do think, though, that to some extent, Tommy Tupperville might have had an advantage similar to the advantage that David Perdue had when he first ran for the Senate, um, in some ways even similar to the advantage that, that Donald Trump had, that these people who have not been in politics before, who are well-known for something else, voters can kind of read into them whatever they would like. And the fact that Trump did not back Sessions and, and Tupperville was relatively unknown, I think, um, helped him there. I also think, sadly, uh, I believe Doug Jones is an Alabama guy, Tupperville, former Auburn coach. That may be the only iron ball we get this fall. <laughs> uh, there are those who think that uh, that uh, Jeff Sessions would have given uh, uh, Doug Jones a little bit tougher battle, but I think that's the most endangered Senate seat uh, in the country right now. Uh, Doug Jones, the Democrat. So we'll see how that plays out. One quick note. Greg, because we're running out of time. But this is a victory for Trump. Trump has uh, not done well in primary elections in terms of some of the congressional candidates he's backed. But boy, he really went after uh, uh, Sessions and it paid off for him. So I suppose he can take that uh, victory as he arrives in Atlanta today, Greg. Yeah, no, that that was that. He's had a string of recent recent victories, although you're right, he had, he had some uh, setbacks. Um, in, in previous cycles, but no, that, that was the biggest factor in this race throughout, which was that he had full-throated support, that the Tuberville had full-throated support of the president, who is still extremely popular in Alabama. It's a state that he won by one of the biggest margins of, of any state in, in 2016. And um, what struck me, too, about Sessions is that um, he's a four-term senator with three decades of public experience, but yet when he lost, he still didn't say a single bad word about President Trump. He just, he kind of Absolutely. All right. I got to interrupt you because we're completely out of time. Greg Bluestein, we look forward to seeing your reporting in the AJC about the president's visit. Uh, Kyle Hayes, we look forward to listening to the latest episode of Peach Pod, the podcast. Uh, I'm Bill Nygut. We're back tomorrow. We're going to talk to mayors from across the state of Georgia about how their cities are doing. In the meantime, take care and please stay safe.